you want a vision of the future, Winston, imagine a boot stamping on a human face forever. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Someone is trying to teach me a lesson in futility. Why am I the only one who isn't killed? They will run you dizzy. They will pile falsehood on top of falsehood until you can't tell a lie from the truth and you won't even want to. That's how the powerful keep their power. Don't you read the papers? The world is a college of corporations inexorably determined by the immutable bylaws of business. The world is a business, Mr. Beale. It has been since man crawled out of the slime. Welcome to another episode of Our Interesting Times. It's my pleasure to have Dr. E. Michael Jones back on the show. Dr. Jones, of course, is the editor of Culture Wars magazine and the author of many books, um, Libido Davidandi, Baron Metal, The Slaughter of Cities, The Jewish Revolutionary Spirit, um, and of course, and the uh, is it still the Logos of History and History of Logos that's coming out? in? Uh... No, no, the title is now Logos Rising, A History of Ultimate Reality. Logos Rising, A History of Ultimate Reality. Yes, and it's only 800 pages long. Also, oh, it's also oh, short. So I was, I was thinking of calling it A Short History of Ultimate Reality. <laughs> 800 pages, okay. So, uh, and that's, uh, is that be out in time for Christmas or just after the New Year? Or? Right around then. It, it depends on the amount of time it spends at the printer. But we're, we're putting the final corrections in right now. Okay, great. Well, I look forward to that. Well, uh, tonight, um, uh, I want to discuss a couple of articles that, that you've written. One, I think, is in, in the September Culture Wars, and one in the most recent November edition of Culture Wars, uh, both uh, uh, involving Sweden, actually. But one is um, the title is The Inner Logic of Neo Paganism in Sweden, Where All Porno Films Get Remade as Horror Movies. And the second piece is Greta Thunberg, Climate Change and Mental Illness. These articles cover sort of this this development or the the path that Sweden has taken in the past, I guess maybe roughly a century, um, a fall from you know decline of religion and an embrace of uh, social engineering or sociology as sort of a religion, uh, socialism of course, and this, sort of this secular humanism, and now you know recently what's been going, it's been been experiencing, and uh, you kind of cover this and how film uh, was used to do this, it's much like in the United States, of course, the, the use of film. And then you also then you link this into this into uh, this uh, I guess this latter day secular Joan of Arc 
<laughs> they put a, I think they've made a huge poster up in San Francisco or something. Yeah, I saw that the, the side of an entire building. Yeah, so now we have sort of a sort of a Che Guevara iconography being created about this you know, poor, right. poor girl, which is really perverse in my opinion, strange. Yes. But anyway, this art. Let's I'll let you talk about these, these two articles: the inner logic of neo-paganism um, and the Greta Thunberg article. What about these pieces? How are they related? What does, what does it tell us about our society today? <laughs> Well, uh, from an American perspective, it's it's important because the, this the architect of social engineering uh, for America came from Sweden. It was Gunnar Myrdal. He came over here uh, in around 1939, 1940, uh, at the behest of the uh, Carnegie Foundation, which I believe was run by Alger Hiss at that point, before he was outed as a communist. Uh, and uh, he was supposed to explain how we were going to take control of uh, our uh, living habits uh, in a new way after after the war was over. Uh, now, he, he didn't write the book. Uh, it's impossible for have him to write the book. It was a 1,200-page book. And I've written a 1,200-page book and a 1,400-page book, and I know kind of how long it takes to do that. And he could not have done it. So he was the front man for the psychological warfare establishment. Uh, but the interesting thing about this is how it turns out that there was a coordinated international effort to bring about social engineering uh, throughout the Western world. And film played a crucial role in this. Uh, and Swedish film, an even more crucial role. So over the course of uh, the 20th century, what you said is true. They, it, Basically, the, the Swedish official established Lutheran church evaporated over this period of time, uh, and it was replaced with socialism. And socialism is uh, Christianity without Christ. And this was going to build heaven on earth. And it was a literal build out because at the beginning of the 20th century, 80% of the people in Sweden lived in farms on the, in the country and 20% in the cities. And by the end of the century, those figures were reversed exactly. They were brought into the cities, put up in modern apartments that uh, basically relieved Swedish women of 10 hours a day of work. They could accomplish now in four hours what it took 14 hours to do before that 10 hours now was uh, open for other use, and the women all rushed out and got jobs, and feminism took over uh, Swedish culture at that point. Um, that's the beginning of the, the story with uh, Greta Thunberg. It's also the middle of, of the story. Uh, Greta Thunberg's mother, um, Malena Ehrenmann, uh, came of age... Uh, during the 80s when feminism was suddenly the accepted way of, of acting. And that's a story that we, we can talk about later. But uh, during this period of time, they were making uh, allowances for, well, what, what are we going to do with all these people? What are all these people going to do now that they're in uh, these uh, von Maschinen in the, uh, in the big cities of Sweden? And uh, one of the things that was going to keep them occupied was sexual liberation. So at this point, you have a collaboration here between um, a Jew in Sweden uh, by the name of Harry Schein. I remember I'm going down the list, you know, of the people important. And, 
it's like uh, you know Ingmar Bergman and and uh, you know Gunnar Gunnarsson and suddenly Harry Schein. That doesn't sound Swedish to me. Well, it turns out he's a, an Austrian Jew who came over to escape the Holocaust, and then suddenly became the most influential person in Sweden. How, how do you do this? I'd like to do this, but uh, Harry Schein did it because he founded a film institute in Sweden in the in the nineteen fifties. Uh, and then started to associate with uh, Ingmar Bergman. Now, I don't know how old you are or whether you're old enough to remember that Ingmar Bergman was the guy, if you were interested in arty films in the 1960s. Yeah, yeah, I remember, yeah. It actually began in the 1950s. Uh, and there were, at this time, let's say during the 1960s, which is when I uh, was a teenager, uh and then uh, got married at the end of the decade, at the age of 21. But during this period of time, there were art film houses uh, in cities like Philadelphia. And these were, these were this is where you went to see films that did not get subjected to the Hollywood production code. And one of the major guys you went to see was Ingmar Bergman. Now, he was, you did this because he, he kind of had the, a lock on the arty film. Uh, he had it had the look, and at this point, this was important because you wanted to have some sense of seriousness. You had to take this seriously uh, so that you could use it to break the code. That's pretty much what happened here. So, in nineteen, uh, the early nineteen sixties, Shine and Bergman and, and the Jews in Hollywood are all collaborating on how can we break the production code. You know, we, I've told the story before about how Hollywood broke the production code. It, it came into existence in 1933 when the Catholic Church <laughs> instituted a boycott of Warner Brothers Theaters in Philadelphia. Cardinal Doherty instituted Harry Warner's losing $100,000 a week in Philadelphia alone. And the Catholics are threatening to spread this boycott to every big city in the United States. And at that point... Uh, the Jews caved in and they instituted a production code which basically said no nudity in film. Well, the, the, the Jews never liked this. The liberals never liked it. Uh, you would see articles in The Nation complaining about this in the 1940s. And during the, this period of time, they decided they're going to do something about it. And Bergman played a crucial role in this. So I don't know, I don't know whether we've already, we've, have we talked about Werner Heisenberg and mm -hmm. that battle on obscenity? Yeah, the, yeah, the, yeah, I interviewed about the importation of pornography in the post-war era right. and these well, Schumacher reports and these things, yeah. Schumacher So the Schumacher, yeah, yeah German is bad, so. <laughs> yeah. So, so uh, this, it turns out that Bergman's intimately involved in this. So he and Shine collaborate on a film called uh, The Silence, mm -hmm. or Tistwagen in, uh, in Swedish. And, uh, it's calculated to break the code. It's cal but it has, so in order to do this, it's got to have that arty feel to it. And it does have a kind of arty feel to it. It's claustrophobic, um, but, uh, you know, the camera work uh, is very good. Bergman worked with a man by the name of Sven Nyqvist, who was the greatest cinematographer in the history of the film. There's absolutely no question. He is stunning. He has, he has a stunning sense of, of how to put a scene, how to put a, a visual together. 
it's if you go to a film like uh, The Seventh Seal, mm-hmm. uh, which was about the mid 1950s, every just about every frame could be a, a, a piece of art. It's so well composed. So anyway, he puts it together, and uh, it it has uh, nudity. It has a scene of a woman masturbating, and it blew it blew up Germany. It got brought into Germany, and there were huge demonstrations uh, against the film. And you know they really couldn't do anything. It was calculated to break the code. Now it didn't break the code in the United States. It just didn't have enough protest. It didn't have enough whatever. And that the code was eventually broken uh, a year later with the uh, the pawnbroker, which is a Holocaust porn movie. Uh, so the Jews had to use the Holocaust to break the code in the United States, but they didn't use this in, in uh, Germany. It had a, it just wrecked it because at this point people started saying, well, if it's artistic, then it has a redeeming social value. Well, that's the same thing that states with the Roth decision, right? Where, right. Yeah. That, that was, that's why you had to have this type of thing. Yeah. So the, so the, the, so then Sweden now becomes the cutting edge of sex. Sweden is the sex paradise, and you have Swedish this and Swedish that. So the ultimate uh, uh, reductio ad absurdum of this is another Swedish film called I Am Curious Yellow. I don't know whether you're old enough to remember that. I remember the title, yes. <laughs> anyway, anyway, this is 1967 now, and another nail in the coffin of decency in the United States, where you have basically speeches of Martin Luther, Martin Luther King giving speeches and then cut to a couple having sex and then more speeches by Martin Luther King. So it's got both. It's got sex and it's got redeeming social value. <laughs> yeah. So what could you ask yeah. for? What more could you ask for? So uh, then they, uh, they import a guy by the name of Joe Sarnoff from America and he starts doing pornography films over there. So this is for Swedish consumption. So they did a film called Anita, which is the story of, uh, uh, I think it's called this nymphomaniac, Swedish nymphomaniac. Well, it turns out that uh, this guy in in Denmark, uh, whose name escapes me, did a movie called Nymphomaniac, which is basically a remake of Anita, uh, which is about this, about the uh, Swedish girl who comes from the country and moves into one of these big uh, cities and uh, gets involved in sexual liberation, which is kind of like the, the paradigm of what's happening, what's happening in Sweden at mm-hmm. that time. So all of this stuff now uh, takes place over a, a trajectory of a number of generations. Okay, so in, in Sweden, you've got Bergman. Bergman's father is a Lutheran minister. And then Bergman gets involved in sexual liberation. He lives the life of a, a, if there were ever a guy that was involved in couch casting, it was Ingmar Bergman. He puts puts Harvey Weinstein to shame uh, in this regard. A a completely ruthless womanizer. A lot of Me Too's in Sweden, right? That's... That's part of the story here. Yeah. How does this? How does this work its way out? So Bergman just wrecks the uh, whole thing, and he does these movies. The like, uh, you know, I, I watched uh, Seventh Seal again, and I told you that I think the cinematography is brilliant. But I'm just getting annoyed at this guy. 
you know, because there's the knight that's Max von Sudoff uh, uh, and uh, the squire and uh, Max von Sudoff is saying, you know, why is God silent? Uh, and this is supposed to be some big existential crisis that the Protestants loved during the 1950s and 60s in America. You know, why is God silent? You can see all the Protestant Protestants from the main line flocking to the movie because they like what uh, like like to talk about this. Well, the short answer to your question is you wouldn't listen to him anyway. <laughs> <laughs> because the first way that God speaks to you is through your conscience. Mm -hmm. And I hate to say it, Ingmar, but you've been ignoring your conscience for years now. You know, you can't act the way you do and expect, you know, apparitions when you're ignoring your conscience. I mean, you know, the guy was brutal. He was brutal. So he, he falls in love with uh, one married woman, lures her away from her family, and then he dumps her. So he wrecked that family, and then I'm going to go on to some fresh meat now, uh, another actress. Just brutal the way he did this. And then he's complaining that God doesn't talk to him anymore. Well, God's probably going to tell you you shouldn't sleep with your neighbor's wife. Uh, that's one of the Ten Commandments, right? <laughs> and you ignored it. So, okay, so this is the, the first generation, you know. Uh, and then the people get born into that world, and then they, th that's a different issue. So th that would be, if you're talking about Greta Thunberg, uh, Bergman would be her grandfather. And there is one of the actors, by the way, in Bergman movies at this time, was Olaf Thunberg, who is actually Greta's grandfather. So now you've got this uh, moving along to heaven on earth, and Greta's mother, Maria uh, Ehrmann, comes into her own. Now, the, the women are doing well at this time. They give you preferential treatment. They're getting all the jobs. They don't have to work hard at home. And, and Malena is even better in this regard because she's, she's an opera singer. And then she becomes really famous because at this point, she wins 2006. She wins the Eurovision Song Contest. Well, she's really famous now. And, and I'm, I'm saying this because she wrote a biography of her family, of her, her and uh, her daughter Greta. And at this point, everything's can't get any better, can it? And at this point, uh, within a, a, a couple of years, Greta stops eating. Now, Greta at this point is 11 years old. And this is a crisis for the family because everyone thinks she's going to die. Now, this was an intact family. The father had decided that his wife was going to be was much more likely to make more money and be more famous than he was. So he decided to be the house husband, which was common in Sweden, I think, at this time. Not uncommon. And he's home, but it's not working. Greta doesn't like it. Uh, she stopped eating. Now, what, what, she, she was 11 years old when she stopped eating. What happens when you're 11 years old and a girl in sweet country like Sweden, you go through puberty. Mm -hmm. So she goes through puberty and mom's not there. It's a kind of frightening for girls. The body is changing. You don't know. You're, 
you got these strange urges now that you didn't have before. You know, your appearance is changing and you need someone to help you negotiate this passage. And mom isn't there. So who is there? Well, the Swedish school system and they have a sex education course. Oh, boy. Sweden led the world in sex education. They were the first ones to do it. And sex education, they made their first sex education film in 1969. And it's right out of the playbook that I talked about in Germany. It's right out of the Schulmädchen report or the Hausfrau report or all of these Krankenschwester report. You know, all of these softcore porn films that are being uh, cranked out at this time with some type of aura of scientific uh, validity to them, you know? So you have these boring discussions and then suddenly it's just like, uh, I am curious yellow, boring discussion. That, oh, wait a minute, the couple's having sex right now. How do we get from this? Bo-? And then we're back to the boring discussion and then they're having more sex and so on and so forth. Yeah, pizza now delivery was- guy shows up or something, right? <laughs> 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 but basically, this, this is the kids watching soft porn films, all, and of course all this instruction is bereft or absent all moral instruction or context. Well, no, there is, there's, I think what you see here is an encouragement to engage in this type of activity. Yeah, yeah. Give give it to an 11-year-old. 11-year-old, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's terrible. I mean, this 11-year-old is probably terrified of what she's seeing on the screen. What are these old people doing up there? Mm -hmm. And and I I have to do that? Now, that's the girl's reaction. The boy's reaction is completely different. (laughs) Yes, I can imagine. Wow, this is great. And they start harassing the girls. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, now, the, the, the one thing that I have to mention is the sex ed film changed uh, by the time Greta got to school, and now it's a cartoon. So, in a sense, it's not as graphic as the film. But on the other hand, it's a boy and a girl who are having sex. Of course, interracial, too, by the way. Yeah, that's another Just part to, of the agenda, yeah. Another part of the agenda here. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's it's somewhat, wait a minute, they're, they're your age, Greta, and they're having sex, so you should have sex. That's the message. Uh, and the boys love this idea and the girls hate it because the boys are all horny and the girls are all feeling molested. And and so this is actually it's a, a study there. Eighty five percent of the girls they surveyed did not like sex ed because it didn't involve any discussion of sexual harassment, which is what they were suffering at mm-hmm. the time. So Greta goes into uh, shock and uh, she goes into school and she's hiding out in the girls room. Because she can't stand it, because the boys are harassing her. So the the hall monitor drags her out of the bathroom and back into the classroom, and the whole thing starts all over again. And at a certain point, she can't take it anymore, and as I said, she stops eating. Now, this is a protest. A protest against what? Well, mom finally came back home. Now, Greta got mom back in the kitchen. Now, this is a, a, a tremendous reproach to feminism, isn't it? Because your daddy was, she was at the point where when she started eating, she would eat five gnocchi and it would take two and a half hours to do this. With dad there kind of cutting the gnocchi off and wringing his hands, hoping Greta will swallow that. So mom comes back and now they are trying to figure, she's, she's got mental problems. Uh, now, this is interesting because when she came over here, the Fox News guy, <laughs> the, 
they have this guy Michael Knowles on, and he says, yeah, why should we have a movement led by a, a mentally ill child? And then the other guy blows up and, take that back, that's awful. And he kind of sputters, but but her, he, what he didn't say, he tried to say it, but well, her mother's the one who said she was mentally ill. Mm-hmm. You know, what do you know about that skinny boy uh, the, to the other guy, the thug on the other end. So, uh, so what's causing this? Well, Malena says it was a video in school. And, oh, you mean the sex ed video? Well, no, I don't mean that. She, it, she saw a video on plastic floating in the Pacific Ocean. There's a, you know, I, I don't know where you know about this. There's a, because of the currents, all the plastic that ends up in the Pacific Ocean ends up in one spot, which is about the size of Texas. Mm-hmm. So it's a lot, a lot of plastic there. And she was so upset that she stopped eating. Well, to be honest with you, I don't believe it. I mean, maybe you believe it. Maybe you believe it sincerely. I think it had more to do with her sex ed, course, more with the fact that the boys were uh, harassing her and, and and no no one's there to explain it or mom's not there to to tell her what's going on. I think that's what's going on here. And I think that basically what they needed was some type of common enemy. And that's, in effect, what they found. So now we have ecology, uh, uh, climate change. Uh, as the villain because if we don't have climate change then we're going to have feminism and sex ed and if you have that you're basically a traitor to the whole Swedish welfare state and they just don't want to do that actually because they're very well connected to the Swedish welfare Mm -hmm. state and and not only that but to the Swedish energy sector as well and it turns out that one of the big players in the Swedish energy sector just happened to see Greta, as she's standing outside the school with her climate uh, school strike uh, banner there, little sign, and he just happens to bring uh, her to the attention of other people, and that's where this legend got started. And, and it turns out he also just happened to be a good friend of Greta's mother. So what you're seeing here is kind of like a, a whole story that's been concocted, and and this lady has been turned into the poster child of a diversion from uh, the fact that Swedish socialism drives you crazy. I think that's the conclusion you've got to come to here. Yeah, it requires a, a much a larger critique of, of, of Swedish society and also the policies that, policies that have been implemented over the past you know, 40, 50, 60 years in Sweden. Um, you mentioned that there's, you know, uh, in, going to the 1960s, uh, Average Swedish mother spent fourteen year fourteen hours in the house, and that was by the mid seventies it had been reduced to four. And so then you have children uh, being more or less being brought up and being uh, monitored or brought up or instructed by strangers. And uh, you, with that environment, you have this sort of a very alarming increase in psychological disorders, eating right. disorders got- among the children. Yeah, eighty five percent of eleven year girls, eleven year old girls have eating disorders. Now, this is not a family problem. If it's 85% of the population, it's not because they all have bad families. This was, in many ways, not a bad family. The father and mother were still together. She had another sibling. Uh, so it's more than that. It's, it's Swedish socialism. Mm-hmm. It's, it's like heaven on earth, except that maybe it, it's like Ingmar Bergman's fantasy 
okay, of unlimited sexual liberation plays out as uh, Milena Ehrmann's feminism, and then the next generation it plays out as Greta Thunberg's mental illness. And you can see the one leading to the other. And, and, what, and what happened over this time is that basically God evaporated from Swedish society. The, the Swedish Lutheran Church, which we've been struggling, was officially disestablished in the year 2000. So at this point, atheism uh, fills the vacuum and atheism is intolerable. So you see it playing out in, in various ways. You've got this identity crisis, uh, atheism causing mental illness. People can't stand it, uh, leading to these, this apocalyptic doomsday cult called climate change, which it, it, this is. And she's a mystic. She is the Joan of Arc of climate change because she has mystical experiences. According to her mother, she can see carbon dioxide. This is what her mother says. She can see carbon dioxide. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. uh, uh, so. And her, and, her, and her disability is almost like a superpower. It is like a superpower. Yeah. That's we're back to X-Men, you know, which mm -hmm. are basically Jews, weirs. Uh, and, and they, this, because they, uh, because she's mentally ill, she's a, a mystic. She's like Michel Foucault, by the way, who spent time in Sweden, <laughs> strangely enough, formulated the idea of the whole idea of mental illness as just a social contract because of the time he spent in Sweden, which was the most advanced uh, welfare state, socialist state in the world at that time, because largely because it's been spared any ravages uh, associated with World War Two. Yeah, completely untouched by World War Two. So they, they hit the ground running after the war, and it was the most advanced economic, it was the biggest economy in Europe, you know, because Germany was on its, you know, prostrate, lying prostrate there. And I guess I mean, Michel Foucault got bored there because everyone was kind of okay with his degenerate behavior. Yeah, Michel Foucault <laughs> wanted to be punished for his homosexuality, and no one was going to do it in Sweden. So he felt very frustrated, hated the Swedes, you know, much, much preferred people. Uh, he would have preferred to have basically dragged up on a scaffold and and uh, have his head chopped off for sodomy, but uh, or punished in some way or other. And the only way he could end up being punished is by going to the S and M bars in San Francisco in the 1970s. So that was how he fulfilled his desire to be punished. But here, here in Sweden, uh, nobody can admit this because you're a traitor to what to to heaven on earth and so you need these surrogates and so climate change becomes the doomsday cult so it's like it is a, a lot like uh, Bergman's film The Seventh Seal where everyone thinks the world is coming to an end because the plague has arrived that's some of the most striking scenes in The Seventh Seal <clears throat> so now Greta is basically telling everybody right now that we have 12 years left 12 years left on earth and then the end will come. And so we have people like Great to kind of flogging herself as she comes through, you know, trying to avoid the punishment of the atheistic non-God uh, as the world comes to an end. Because this serves the agenda because she's she's tied into this uh, Henrik Paulgen uh, 
I think on at ICE, her connections to the energy sector there. And, and yeah, she, yeah, he did a good job of explaining that. And and the crucial figure again, a crucial link to both stories, is Olaf Palma. Uh, Olaf Palma was the uh, culture minister at the time when Bergman and Harry Schein were getting started, and he ensured assured that ensured that they got government money to to launch the Svensk uh, film industry, uh, which got basically a kickback for, from every film. They were collecting like tax for this thing. And so they were able to produce, crank out one film after another. Bergman did a film a year uh, during his heyday, the 50s and the 60s. And, you know, in some sense, they were good films, but in another sense, they were kind of propaganda for atheism too, for the Swedish, for the Swedish uh, social welfare state. Yeah, I mean, by I mean, if you look at the results, um, this is you know decades, perhaps even a century in the making in Sweden because they started sort of edging towards socialism in the, in the um, end of the nineteenth century, really. Um, but they, uh, I guess, they were through kind of uh, fits and starts in the thirties, the forties. Then there's sort of a reversion to traditionalism in the fifties, I think. Then the sixties, it was off to the races. But now, look at Sweden. I think more than half of all births are out of wedlock. Twenty percent of all Swedes are actually foreign born. This is that sort of the demographic warfare they're being targeted with, with the yeah. immigration crisis. So there's a, a you know there's multiple agendas being pursued here. Uh, and there and there are Swedes who are unhappy. Yeah, single persons. I think I think was it the two thirds of the population live in single person households. I, they're isolated. They're atomized. You know. Yeah, and there are people who are unhappy, like Henrik uh, uh, at Red Ice. Who just got deplatformed, by the mm -hmm. way? Uh, but what? But what? What are you now? And that's Hendrik is. I think he's a pagan. It's the neo-paganism you write about in the first article. Yeah, yeah, I know. So there, here you have this this vacuum. Now, so it's not socialism. We can't stand this idea of atheism. We can't go back to Lutheranism. We don't even know what Catholicism is, because Lutheran has been Lutheranism has been Christianity for five hundred years now. So what else is there? Uh, and so what are we going to do? Well, I guess we'll go back to being pagans, and that's where that movie Midsummer comes in, uh, which is basically it's a remake of uh, Wicker Man. Uh, and a lot of other stuff, but mm -hmm. I mean, primarily a remake of Wicker Man, which is a brilliant movie. It's a really good movie. You're talking about the one in the seventies, yeah. Yeah, the one in the seventies. I didn't see the other one, but the one in the seventies yeah. is a very good movie about someone realizing that neo paganism was being reborn there. <clears throat> so, again, the, the lure here is kind of uh, sexual liberation. The the cop shows up in. Uh, wicker man on a, a remote Scottish island where basically the social order has collapsed and you've got the rule of Dionysus on the island and he comes out and there are people copulating in the graveyard and he's shocked and he's going to restore order uh, but uh, he gets uh, you know he ends up being the victim mm -hmm. ends up being the victim that's what this the uh, midsummer is about except that it's Americans coming to visit Sweden and there are all of these quaint Swedish customs that seem really neat until you realize that they're killing people. They believe in euthanasia. And then everybody, one by one of the Americans, ends up dead. And then the final one is the guy gets burnt alive uh, as this human sacrifice. So if you're so Hen Henrik did not like this movie at all. But I think that's because 
it cuts too close to home here, you know, uh, because I, I was, they had me on, he and Lana had me on last year at Christmas and there's Henrik with his Santa Claus hat on and we're kind of reminiscing about Christmas. And at this point I'm thinking, well, isn't that about the birth of Christ? So <laughs> shouldn't we shouldn't we be talking about the birth of Jesus Christ uh, instead of just what was under the Christmas tree? I mean, uh, that's the way I felt. So I, I felt a little bit out of place there because I felt it was kind of inappropriate to be celebrating Christmas when you don't believe in Christ. You know, but that's that's sort of the problem here. We have the same thing here, Tim. We have the same thing here. We're having identity crisis across the board. Identity crisis. Well, I, I think you marked, you pointed out, and in, in, uh, I think it was on Henrik's interview that in Sweden there was no resistance to it because Sweden was so it, it was so unified that it was easier for our social engineers to come in there and sort of wipe the slate clean and push everything aside and impose their agenda. Where the United States is large, it's cumbersome, it's decentralized, and so it's been there's been periodic resistance to it. And you have the Catholic Church here, yeah. which you did not have in Sweden as a force. Uh, and it was co-opted, but I mean, it did provide some type of resistance. And to be honest, it's still providing resistance. Mm -hmm. I mean, the Catholics have never accepted abortion. And and people like uh, that lady, the Jewish lady on the Supreme Court, just can't understand this. <laughs> yes. She's failed. You know, why, what's the problem with these people out there? It's get over it, guys. It's 50 years. Of course, you could turn around and say, yeah, well, what is your issue, man? How long has it been since World War II? When are you guys yeah. going to get over World War II? <laughs> yes. Get over it. That, ki that killing's over. <laughs> Wait a minute. What's what's the problem here? Double standard, I yeah. guess. But uh, the, the so what you have over this period of time is uh, basically the, the, the net result of social engineering is an identity crisis. You know, I've just been talking about this. I have a, a Twitter storm against me of this lynch mob of white boys who are attacking me because I'm saying that the real nexus of ethnic identity in America is religion. And it's not my idea. I mean, Will Herberg did a book in the 1954 uh, called Protestant Catholic Jew, and which I think he makes a good argument that you know, the first generation that comes here can't even speak the language and you're expected to give up the language, uh, but you're not expected to give up your religion. And so that becomes the, 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 the source of your identity. Uh, and this book was written in 1954. And the other big event in 1954 were two social engineering yeah, yeah. Uh, decisions passed by the Supreme Court, one of them Brown versus School Board which said now race is the criterion of life. The, the main criterion, the, the most important criterion of identity in America is race. And they meant to talk about the, the black race and we're giving them preferential treatment so that they could bring them up to some sense of equality. But over the course of this time, uh, they created the white race too. Yeah, yeah. With but it's an empty, yeah. I mean, it, it, you know, do you it's empty i'm trying to explain this to people you know there you know you could look you could say in the united states there are left-handed people and there are right-handed people and that would be a true statement 
And then you could say, well, you know, the Italian word for left is sinistra. And we have our word sinister. So are you saying that left-hand people are sinister? Is that, what you, is that a nice thing to say? Mm-hmm. <laughs> These people are hurt by that. And so, therefore, we're going to have a campaign to rehabilitate left-handed people. And, and, and suddenly you go from a reality, which is that there are some people who are left-handed, to a social agenda, which is based on the content that you have put into that reality. Well, they're two different things. That, con- that content does not correspond to uh, reality. That's, that's, it corresponds to the mind of a social engineer. And so as a result of that, you created a countergroup in a kind of Hegelian fashion. But the countergroup, what was their identity? What was their identity? Well, if you're the opposite of black, you must be white. But it didn't really sit. You know, so there's all these people, you know, like, so Nixon is trying to get a hold of these people. He didn't refer to them as white people. He said they were the silent majority. Yeah. And what we now know is that Kevin Phillips put this in Nixon's ear by uh, getting him to attract Democrat, Catholic Democrats to leave the Democratic Party and join the Republican Party. A big transformation took place. Well, their identity was Catholic. And that corresponds to what Herberg said in his book. And I think it's true. So the question, so what you have over this period of time is social engineering. Uh, Mary Eberstadt just did a book saying the sexual revolution created identity politics, which is similar to what I'm trying to say here. Mm-hmm. Basically, you destroyed all of these other groups. You created a vacuum. And then, you know, you're always the arsonist in the fire department. So now you're going to fill the vacuum with a confected identity and it involves race. And your idea is you're going to have the black race having some type of special privilege. But in doing that, you created the angry white guys who identify as the opposite of what you're doing. But is that who you really are? You know, is that who you really are? Well, that's, I said to you, you, you know, the politicians have been trying to identify this group. And the first, you know, Nixon said they were the silent majority. And Jerry Falwell said they were the moral majority. And then Pat Buchanan tried to mobilize them with the resurrection of America first. And Donald Trump finally succeeded in, in using them to get into office. He used America first again. But, you know, at the time, in September of that election year, Hillary Clinton said they were a basket of deplorables. We're all talking about the same group, but that that is a function of uh, Hillary Clinton's mind. You know, that's a category of Hillary Clinton's mind. What are they in reality? What are they? And I'm saying they're religious. The, 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 the identifier is religion. And uh, uh, basically the question, if, if you want to answer the question, who am I? The best way to do it is to say, ask, who made me? And at that point, you bring God into it. And now you're dealing with objective categories. Okay, these are categories in the mind of God and not in the mind of Hillary Clinton. And that's why I think that uh, religion is the, uh, the armature of ethnic life in America, Protestant, Catholic, Jew. And Herberg said, if you're not one of those, you're not really an American. You have mm-hmm. no identity. And that's the phenomenon. 
So what? So, but again, this this high racial thing is marching forward. And Sam Francis, that just brought their a posthumous book came out. They're written by Sam Francis, uh, and Sam Francis is a man who started off as a Southerner, born in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and then he becomes a conservative, which is a sign that religion basically evaporated from his life. And then that conservative identity was taken from him by William F. Buckley, who basically got him fired from the Washington Times. Now, that's another sign that you don't have a real identity if some other guy can come along and take it away from you, which is what Buckley did. And at that point, Sam became a white guy. And Sam inspired a number of people to go down that path after he uh, died. And one of those people was Richard Spencer. So in the introduction to the book, Richard Spencer shows up as one of the people that made this possible. Now, Richard Spencer became famous at Charlottesville. Uh, he was the leader of the, great, the, the white boys who had come to Charlottesville to unite the right. Now, who appointed Richard Spencer the leader here? Well, it was ABC, NBC, and CBS. They stuck the microphone in front of this guy because they knew he was going to make the most extreme statements possible, and that would vindicate all the other people watching there that he was a racist and all these guys were reprehensible. And that's precisely what he did. So Richard led the white boys to Charlottesville. Uh, he handed out spears and he told the white boys to charge the machine gun. And that's what they did. And they all got mowed down. And some of them are still in legal jeopardy because they were set up. So I'm saying this. I'm trying to give you the, the, the American trajectory here uh, of how basically people got lured into accepting a false identity, which was then used to destroy them. So that's that's what happened here. That's what happened here. And that's why I'm saying that uh, identity is important, no matter where you are. But again, uh, you've cataloged or you've uh, written about and in, uh, in your books about the, the assault on identity, real identity, like the uh, ethnicity in the, in the United States, we could particularly the Catholics, the destruction yeah. of the neighborhoods, the creation of suburbia to create a deracinated, a deracinated rather, atomized whiteness, which um, then, uh, you know, could be subjected to all the psychological warfare. The use of the um, the Negro as a proxy warrior, a sexual revolutionary. Right. And right. so we set these categories, like the civil rights movement, this hollowed civil rights movement, where uh, it's hard to critique or criticize it because it's hollowed. It's, 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 the, the claims are unassailable and the policies that come from that you can't criticize so we have to, we have to accept affirmative action we have to accept busing and integration all these things that are creating you know atomization deracination destroying community and at the same time uh this large mass um this is feminism this is the wider economy in the 70s and 80s the creation of the the, the dual income uh, family these things the consumption patterns that come from that all that's being promoted in the culture and all that they destroy everything you destroy all these mediating institutions and um and um i guess uh, institutions that you you could relate to and and have real community all that's been destroyed and now all you have is this sort of this mass uh sort of a uh, united states has become a sort of a mass uh shopping mall and there's nothing. Yeah, to, but, yeah. but you also have the rise of identity politics. Yes. At this point. So in order to be a citizen now, you have to be a member of a privileged group. And if you're not a member of a privileged group, then you have no rights. Mm -hmm. You have no 
That's what's yeah. wrong. You, you do not. Charlottesville made this perfectly clear. Okay, if you identify as white, you're saying you're a racist. If you're saying you're a racist, you have no rights. And that means literally no rights. So you do not have the right to assemble, which is guaranteed in the Constitution. Or or to defend yourself. (laughs) Or self-defense. Yeah. Or you do not have the right to free speech. You have none of these things because those things are only for privileged groups, privileged identity groups. And if you don't have one, then you have no rights. This is this is. Yeah. Another way of saying this is tyrannical, a completely tyrannical regime that abrogates all of the rights that are guaranteed to citizens in the Constitution of the United States. And we have to see it as such. How 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 does um the sort of this dispersed, vague white majority, which is still, you know, sixty two, sixty three percent of the country how does it respond to sort of uh, to the oligarchs, the you know Jewish media, the banking system, and these the you know, obviously there's the assault on heritage America. I mean, you right. you alluded to these these cartoons, which subtly has a black boy having sex with a white girl in Sweden. We're being subjected to the same things. We're just n- denial of identity. It's hard to articulate opposition to it because, well, we're all liberals, right? <laughs> that's that's the default. Well, you know, I, I think I think what look what we're saying here is that you do not have the right to assemble. Mm -hmm. You do have that right. And because you do not have that right, you can't associate with other people of like mind. So you're by yourself. Mm -hmm. And then you realize, I'm all by myself. No one's listening to me. I'm going to take this into my hands. You pick up a gun and you start shooting people. I think this is directly related to the fact that we have these mass shootings on a regular basis here. And I've already accused the ADL of doing this being responsible for this because they are prohibiting speech. That's what they do now. And now we have the other Jewish organizations going around the state legislatures, basically uh, demanding that they adopt hate crimes legislation, which means basically you will go to jail if some Jew doesn't like what you say. Mm -hmm. Now, we're in a better situation. This is a worldwide phenomenon, and it's happening in Ireland right now. And the poor Irish have been so hornswoggled they like over this past decade they've removed one article after another from their constitution mm-hmm. you know the family uh, the basis of the you know the society the uh, right to life uh, marriage between a man and a woman and now they are going after hate crimes legislation isn't there a guy named alan shatter in ireland who is a minister of justice he's jewish who's spearheaded these changes in immigration policy in the past 20 years there the guy I'm hearing is Charlie Flanagan, and that doesn't sound like a Jewish name. <laughs> this guy, I think Alan Shatter is a guy there. It who's, might be. It might be. Yeah. They have a homosexual Indian as their Tisic or their prime minister. Yeah. You've had a couple articles in Culture Wars about Ireland in the past couple of months. Right? You know, yeah, so, yeah, yeah, we have. We have. And it's a very bad situation there. Uh, and uh, But it's the same situation all over the world. In other words... So the article comes out that Charlie Flanagan is going to promote hate crimes legislation. And all of the comments are basically, well, this is the oligarchs who can't control the narrative anymore. That's what it's about. It's not about hate. Yeah, it's about it's about you're losing control of the narrative. And we're just going to ban speech, ban speech. The same people who were in, in favor of free speech in the 1960s. As Leo Pfeffer bragged, when free speech meant promoting obscenity and pornography, are now in favor of hate crimes legislation because they're in control and they don't want to lose control. 
And that's what this is all about, demonizing speech, which is going to increase violence. And I, I, might, I think they know that. Well, and also Ireland's, you know, I mean, you think Ireland, you think, uh, you think what, fair skin, red hair, right? And, and now they're importing, you know, North Africans into Ireland, em, refugees. Yeah. Yeah, they have yeah. Uh, like 300 Somalis show up in a village that has 100 Irish people living in it. And there's specific NGOs run by specific groups that are doing right, that. Right, yeah. right. And the, Jew, the Jews are heavily involved yeah. in the migration uh, is, issue. But also in Ireland, is the, the cultural change that occurred during the, you know, the Emerald uh, Tiger and the, what they did with the with the boom and bust cycle and did to Irish culture with m the corruption of money in Ireland and and that's this yeah. phenomenon. What's that? Give us back our poor our poor roads. I mean, the idea that we want yeah, traditional that's society. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Waters. I met. I just met with him. Had a long conversation with him uh, at Notre Dame at their no oh, okay and culture conference just this this Saturday, just a couple of days ago. And uh, John is just just very he's just very down. I said, John, you know, m my readers are saying I, I need to go out and get you back off the ledge before you jump. You know, you're depressing my readers, you know, kind of. <laughs> and by the end of it, I'm saying, well, John, I think you convinced me that it's hopeless. So I'm going to join you on the ledge now. <laughs> well, it's not. I mean, you, you mark, remarked how you, you know, they tried to shut you down in Poland because Poland's unified Catholic. That they could fight. They could fight. Uh, well, right. You could, you could fight the, the Jewish organizations. That's the only way it's going to work in Ireland too. Yeah. So when the hierarchy wakes up and they realize, no, this is not a situation where your uh, love of neighbor. This is warfare. Mm -hmm. oh, so I'm not. I'm not saying you should hate these Somalis, but by the same token, you have to realize that you're you're trying to destroy their culture. You put them up in a hotel. Where the poor the poor Irish are struggling to make a living, you put these people up in a hotel, you give them free meals and all these benefits, and you expect that there's not going to be you resentment. You want conflict. You want racial conflict because then you can come down and impose your draconian solution. Well, it's that's the same program they did in Philadelphia in the 1950s and 60s. That's what I keep telling the Irish. Yeah. So listen to us because it happened over here before it happened to you over there. Well, I'm going to say because, you know, the same thing. a country like Ireland, which you think Irish, there's a, so there's, there's an ethnic identity. Same with, same with Germany in these countries. The United States, you know, this is sort of a Freemasonic creation where, you know, all different groups or ethnic groups are here. Although it was a European creation and all that. But I think the crime in the United States is social engineering where the United States was decentralized and you had sort of this, I had a sort of, sort of a... um Motives for vendi between the various ethnic groups, and you respected ethnic neighborhoods and communities, and you weren't involved in busing and these things. Whatever problems did exist, perhaps even in the South and throughout the country, could have been resolved in the in the fullness of time. But they wanted to accelerate, it and they had an agenda which you write about, like in the slaughter cities, was they wanted to unify the you know homogenize the country for the Cold War, the empire, and these things. So yeah, you know it, yeah, you know. But that's yeah. I think again, what the the devil here is social engineering. Right or the instrument, and rather, and that's that's why I come down is, is we have to point out a lot of these people who are pointing out the situation now. Then they're being called out. They're being all names. But this is after decades of social engineering and bad faith on the part of the government. Yeah. You know, so don't don't call me a racist because I understand the way social engineering yeah, works. Yeah, yeah, Don't call me an anti-Semite because I understand that there was a battle between Catholics and Jews over obscenity in Hollywood. Mm -hmm. this It's wearing off. It's wearing off. The word is getting out, and the people are starting to understand that they're being 
taken. Well, this is a form of control. They're yeah. being taken to the cleaners here. Yeah, before we, we, yeah, everyone, there's a broader issue here how social engineering, feminism, all this, these ideologies and, and these programs to destroy traditional society, whether it's in Sweden or the United States, the, the, the end effect is increased mental illness, atomization, depression, yeah. breakdowns in, in society. Break- things, you know, Prozac, suicide. Yeah. All of this type of stuff. When are you, when are you going to start uh, waking up to the fact that people don't like it? And I'm not a bad person because I don't like this type of stuff. It's not working. But even the United you know? States, look at the epidemic of people, prescription drugs, and, you know, people right. who are on, on uh, you know, Prozac or people who, who take anxiety medicine or, you know, just yeah. the, the addiction, these things. Largely because there was this modernity just isn't doesn't give them what they need because the breakdown in purpose and, you know, in community and these things and feminism doesn't do it. It lies to people, things that going out and getting a job, slaving for some corporation is somehow uh, better than, than, uh, than raising a family. And I mean, yeah. and we're seeing, we see the effects of it in Sweden with this high rates of depression. We hear about that all the time. Yeah. Well, instead of, you know, again, instead of going back and say rethinking 50, 60 years of social engineering, they can't do that. They blame <laughs> the climate or they blame some, or they create this idea of mental illness, you know. Right. That, or you know. or it's that, that plastic island in the Pacific. Yeah. It's driving us all crazy. That's the problem. Well, that's ridiculous. I'm sorry, it's ridiculous. And everybody's waking up. And that's why proof of that is this push for hate crimes legislation. Yeah. They wanna they want to abolish speech. And you abolish speech, you're gonna the violence will create Will increase exponentially. Well, that's a way of shutting down uh, criticism of, say, immigration policy. Yeah, you know that now you're 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 a xenophobe, you're a transphobe, xenophobe, homophobe. We know, you know that it's not yeah. working. Yeah. It's not working. And of course, uh, I think uh, over like ninety five percent of all the plastic in the oceans come from a few rivers in Africa and Asia or something. Yeah. You know, so it's not the, you know, and again, now, you know, there are some legitimate environmental concerns, but it's not the the doomsday that Greta Thunberg no, you know, no, is preaching. No, yeah. no, it's not. You know, anyway, it's it's been good to talk to you, Tim. No, I, listen, always enjoy, I always enjoy being on your show. Yeah. Thank you for coming back on the show. Of course, uh, you can follow your work at Culture Wars. Culture Wars. You can sign up for an advanced copy of Logos Rising. Go on to Culture Wars website. And it'll be available soon. So yeah, you have this uh, website's been revamped in the past few months. It's much yeah, more interactive. Yeah, everything's much better. We're, we're much more higher level professionalism than we had before. So and if you go to yeah, if you sign up, if you sign up, you also get updates. Like I get emails now of your various interviews. I don't have to like search now. Yes, that's right. That's right. So okay, let's we'll take we'll keep an eye out for uh, logos Lo- rising. Yes. Uh, I'm sorry. Is Logos Rising, what was the subtitle? Uh, a History of Ultimate Reality. Yeah. Logos Rising, History of Ultimate Reality, due maybe late December, early January. Yeah, That's... I think so. Great. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Jones. That's Dr. Jones, Dr. E. Michael Jones at culturewars.com. Uh, I'll post it soon. When I do, I'll send you the link. Thank you, Tim. Good Always night, Tim. Bye bye. Have a happy Thanksgiving.